Art, Independence, and Spirit by Brenda Newland. Narrated by Will Stoff. Copyright 2018. BN Publishing Online at bnpublishing.com. Chapter 1. Everybody is talented, original, and has something important to say. I have been writing for many years and have learned some things, not only from my own long, hard work, but from a writing class I ran for three years. The class consisted of all kinds of people, prosperous and poor, stenographers, housewives, salesmen, cultivated people, and servant girls who had never been to high school, timid and bold people, slow and quick ones. This is what I learned. Everybody is talented, original, and has something important to say. And it may comfort you to know that the people you might suspect of not having talent are actually those who write very easily and glibly, without inhibition or pain, skipping gaily through a novel in a week or so. Yet they are also the ones who did not seem to improve much go forward. You cannot get much out of them. They give up working and drop out. But they, too, are talented underneath. I am sure of this. It is just that they did not break through the shell of easy glibness to what is true and alive underneath. For most people must break through a shell of timidity and strain. Everybody is talented. Everybody is talented because everybody who is human has something to express. Try not expressing anything for 24 hours and see what happens. You will nearly explode. You will want to write a long letter or draw a picture or sing or make a dress or plant a garden. Religious men used to go into the wilderness to impose silence on themselves. But really it was so that they would talk to God. They needed to express something. That is to say, they had thoughts welling up in them, and the thoughts went out to someone, whether silently or aloud. Writing or painting is putting thoughts on paper. Music is singing them. This is all there is to it. Everybody is original. Everybody is original if he tells the truth and if he speaks from himself. But it must be from his true self and not from the self he thinks he should be. Jennings at John Hopkins, who knows more about heredity and the genes and chromosomes than any other man, says that no individual is exactly like another, that no two identical persons have ever existed. Consequently, if you speak or write from yourself, you cannot help but be original. So remember these two things. You are talented and you are original. Be sure of this. I emphasize this because self-trust is one of the most important things in writing. And I will explain why later. This creative power and imagination is in everyone, as in the need to express and share it with others. But what happens to it? It is very tender and sensitive, and it is usually drummed out of people early in life by criticism. So-called helpful criticism is often the worst kind, by teasing, jeering, rules, teachers, critics, and all those unloving people who forget that the letter killeth and the spirit giveth life. Sometimes I think of life as a process where everybody is discouraging and taking everybody else down a peg or two. You know that all children have their creative power. You have all seen how little children in the family used to put on play after play. They wrote the plays themselves. They were very good plays too, interesting, exciting, and funny. They acted in them. They made the costumes themselves, beautiful, effective, and historically accurate contriving them in the most ingenious ways out of attic junk and their mother's best dresses. They constructed the stage and theater by carrying chairs, moving the piano, carpentering, printed and sold the tickets. They did their own advertising. They brought in the audience, 
capturing all the babysitters, dogs, babies, mothers, and neighbors within a radius of a mile or so. For what reward? For a few pins and pennies. Yet these small ten-year-olds were working with feverish energy and endurance. A production took about two days. If they had worked that hard for school, it probably would have killed them. They were working for nothing but fun, for that glorious inner excitement. It was the creative power working in them. It was hard, hard work, but there is no pleasure or excitement equal to it, and it was something never forgotten. But this joyful, imaginative, impassioned energy dies out of us very young. Why? Because we do not see that it is great and important, because we let dry obligation take its place, because we don't respect it in ourselves and keep it alive by using it, and because we don't keep it alive in others by listening to them. For when you come to think of it, the only way to love a person is not, as the stereotyped Christian notion is, to coddle them and bring them soup when they are sick, but by listening to them and seeing and believing in the God and the poet in them. For by doing this, you keep the God and the poet alive and allow it to flourish. How does the creative impulse die in us? The English teacher who wrote fiercely on the margin of your project in red ink, trite, rewrite, help to kill it. Critics kill it and your family. Families are great murderers of the creative impulse, particularly husbands. Older brothers sneer at younger brothers and kill it. And then there is that American pastime known as kidding, with the result that everyone is ashamed to show the slightest enthusiasm or passion or sincere feeling about anything. But I will discuss this more later. You have noticed how teachers, critics, parents, and other know-it-alls, when they see you, have written something. Become at once long-nosed and finicky, going through it to stiff out the flaws. Aha! A misspelled word! As though Shakespeare could spell. As though spelling, grammar, and what you learn in a book about rhetoric has anything to do with freedom and the imagination. A friend of mine commented on books that are dedicated as follows. To my wife, by whose helpful criticism, and so on. He said the dedication should really read, To my wife, if it had not been for her continual criticism and persistent nagging doubt as to my ability, this book would have appeared in Harper's instead of the hardware age. So often I come upon articles written by critics of the very highest brow and by other prominent writers deploring the attempts of ordinary people to write. The critics wrap us on the head for our nerve. No one but a virtuoso should be allowed to do it. The prominent writers sell funny articles about all the utterly crazy, fatuous, amateurish people who think they can write. Well, that is all right. But this is one of the results. All people who try to write, and all people long to, which is natural and right, become anxious, timid, contracted, become perfectionists, so terribly afraid that they may put something down that is not as good as Shakespeare. And so no wonder you don't write and put it off month after month, decade after decade. For when you write, if it is to be any good at all, you must feel free and not anxious. The only good teachers are those friends who love you, who think you are interesting or very important or wonderfully funny, whose attitude is, tell me more. Tell me all you can. I want to understand more about everything you feel and know and all the changes inside and outside of you. Let more come out. And if you have no such friend and you want to write well, then you must imagine one. Yes, I hate traditional criticism. I don't mean great criticism like that of Matthew Arnold and others, but the usual picky, fussy, mussy criticism, which thinks it can improve people by telling them where they are wrong 
It results only in putting them in straitjackets of hesitancy and self-consciousness, extinguishing vision and bravery. I hate it not so much for myself, for I have learned at last not to let it balk me, but I hate it because of the potentially shining, gentle, gifted people of all ages that it snuffs out every year. It is a murderer of talent, and because the most modest and sensitive people are the most talented, having the most imagination and sympathy, these are the very first ones to get killed off. It is the brutal egoists that survive. Of course, in fairness, I must remind you that we writers are the most lily-livered of all craftsmen. We expect more for the most peewee efforts than any other people. A gifted young woman writes a poem. It is rejected. She does not write another, perhaps for two years, perhaps her entire life. Think of the patience and love that a tap dancer or vaudeville acrobat puts into his work. Think of how many times Chrysler has practiced trills. If you will write as many words as Chrysler has practiced trills, I prophesy that you will win the Nobel Prize in ten years. But here is an important thing. You must practice, not perfunctorily, but with all your intelligence and love, as Chrysler does. A great musician once told me that one should never play a single note without hearing it, feeling that it is true, thinking it beautiful. And when you begin to work on your writing, remember these things. Work with all your intelligence and love. Work freely and rollickingly, as though talking to a friend who loves you. Mentally, at least three or four times a day, thumb your nose at the know-it-alls, jeerers, critics, and doubters. And so that you will work long and hard and not neglect your writing, I will now prove that it is important for yourself that you do so. Chapter 2. Imagination is the divine body in every man. William Blake. I have proved that you are all original and talented and need to let your writing emerge from within. That is to say, you have the creative impulse, but the ardor for it is inhibited and dried up by many things, as I said, by criticism, self-doubt, duty, nervous fear, anxiety about making a living, and fear of not excelling. Now, this creative power, I think, is gone. My theology may not be very accurate, but that is how I think of it. I know that William Blake called this creative power the imagination, and he said it was God. Hey, if anyone ought to know, for he was one of the greatest poets and artists that ever lived. Now, Blake thought that this creative power should be kept alive in all people for all of their lives, and so do I. Why? Because this creative force is life itself. It is the spirit. In fact, it is the only important thing about us. The rest of us is body parts, materialistic cravings and fears. How can we keep this spirit alive? By using it, by letting it out, by giving it some time. But if we are women, we think it is more important to wipe noses and carry dollies than to write or to play the piano. And men spend their lives adding and subtracting and dictating letters when they secretly long to write sonnets and play the violin and burst into tears at the sunset. They do not know, as Blake did, that this is a fearful sin against them. They would be much greater now, and more full of light and power, had they had really written the sonnets and played the fiddle, and wept over the sunset, as they desired. I have to stop here and tell you a little bit about Blake, in order to show you the blessings of using your creative power. To show you what it is, which may take me a whole book, and what it feels like. Blake used to say, when his energies were diverted from his drawing or writing, that he was being devoured by jackals and hyenas, and his love of art i.e. expressing and painting or writing the ideas that came to his imagination, 
was so great that he would see nothing but art in anything he loved. God, he often called the poetic genius, and he said, He who loves feels love descend into him, and if he has wisdom, may perceive it it is from the poetic genius, which is the Lord. Now, this free, abundant use of his creative power made him one of the happiest men who ever lived. He wrote copious, endless poetry, without the slightest hope or concern that it would ever be published. For a time, he thought that if he wrote less, he would do more engraving and painting. He stopped it for a month or more, but he found on comparison that he did more painting when he let out this inspired visionary writing. All this proves, I think, that the more you use this joyful creative power, like the little children producing the plays, the more you have. As for Blake's happiness, a man who knew him said, if asked whether I ever knew among the intellectual a happy man, Blake would be the only one who would immediately occur to me. And yet this creative power in Blake did not stem from ambition. I think ambition injures it and makes it a nervous strain and hard work. Blake burned most of his own work for he said, I should be sorry if I had any earthly fame, for whatever natural glory a man has is so much detracted from his spiritual glory. I wish to do nothing for profit. I wish to live for art. I want nothing whatever. I'm quite happy. As an old man, his wish for a little girl was that God might make his world as beautiful to her as it had been to him. He did not mind death in the least. He said that to him, it was just like going into another room. On the day of his death, he composed songs to his maker and sang them for his wife to hear. Just before he died, his countenance became fair, his eyes brightened, and he burst into singing of the things he saw in heaven. The death of a saint, said a poor charwoman who had come in to help Mrs. Blake. Yet this was the man who said, most of us confuse God with Satan. He said that what most people think is God is merely prudence and the restrainer and inhibitor of energy, which results in fear and passivity and imaginative dearth. And what we so often call reason and think is so fine is not intelligence or understanding at all, but it's rather this. It is arguing from our memory and our bodily sensations and from the warnings of other people that if we do such and such a thing, we will be uncomfortable. It won't pay. People will think it is silly. No one else does it. It is immoral. But the only way you can grow in understanding and discover whether a thing is good or bad, Blake says, is to do it. Sooner strangle an infant in its cradle than nurse unacted desires. Reason, as Blake calls it, which is really just caution, continually nips and punctures and shrinks the imagination and the ardor and the freedom and the passionate enthusiasm welling up in us. It is Satan, Blake said. It is the only enemy of God. And when a prominent citizen of his time, a logical, opining, erudite, measured, rationalistic know-it-all, warned people against mere enthusiasm, Blake wrote furiously, he was a tender-hearted, violent, and fierce, red-haired man. Mere enthusiasm is the all in all. I tell you all this because I hope to prove to you the importance of your working at writing, at some creative thing that you care about and that you feel for and that you will persist in, and not only for the next few weeks. I want you to do it for years to come, for the rest of your life. We have come to think that duty should come first. I disagree. Duty should be a byproduct. Writing, the creative effort, the use of the imagination should come first, at least for some part of every day of your life. It is a wonderful blessing if you will use it. You will be happier, more enlightened, alive, impassioned, lighthearted, 
and generous to everybody else. Even your health will improve, colds will disappear, and all the other ailments of discouragement and boredom. I know a great woman who makes her living by teaching violin lessons during the day. Her name is Francesca, and I will speak of her later. Then from midnight until 5 o'clock in the morning, she is happy because she can work on her book. This is her daily routine. The book is her life work. She has been working at it for 30 years. In it, she hopes to explain to people how they can learn to play the violin beautifully in two years instead of ten. And she wants them to know this because playing great music will do so much for them all. One day, she came to me with a very bad cold. Lie down quick, I explained, and I will get you some hot lemonade and put a shawl over you. She opened her eyes wide at me and said almost with horror in her voice, Oh, that is no way to treat a cold. No, I slumped a little yesterday, and so I caught it. But I worked all night, and it is much, much better now. Now, you see, I have established a reason for your working at writing. Not in a trifling, weak way, but with affection and endurance. In other words, I want you to feel that there is a great intrinsic reward to writing. Unless you feel that, you will soon give it up. You won't last very long. A few rejection slips will flatten you out. A few years of not earning a penny on it will make you give it up and feel bitterly that it was a waste of time. I want to assure you with all earnestness that no writing is a waste of time. No creative work where the feelings, the imagination, and the intelligence work. With every sentence you write, you have learned something. It has done you good. It has stretched your understanding. I know that, even if I knew for certain that I would never have anything published again and would never make another cent from it, I would still keep on writing. Chapter 3. Why a Renaissance nobleman wrote sonnets. Now perhaps the thoughts... There is no money in it, and it may never be published. Dry up all the springs of energy in you so that you can't drag yourself to a piece of paper. I have experienced this often. I have cleared it up for myself in the following way. At the time of the Renaissance, all gentlemen wrote sonnets. They did not think of getting them published in the Woman's Home Companion. Well, why write a sonnet then at all? One reason is, and this is very fine and commendable, the hope of getting it in the Woman's Home Companion. But there are many other more important reasons. And incidentally, unless you have these other reasons, the sonnet won't have much vitality, and the woman's home companion will send you a rejection slip. A Renaissance nobleman wrote a love sonnet for a number of reasons. A slight and very incidental reason may have been that he wanted to show people he could do it. But the real reason was to tell a certain lady that he loved her. Although they also wrote beautiful sonnets about all sorts of things, Sonnets that were prayers, indignant business letters, and political arguments. But say the nobleman wrote a sonnet to tell the lady that he loved her. His chest was full of a pent-up feeling that he had to express. He did it as eloquently, beautifully, and passionately as he could on paper. And although his sonnet was never published in any magazine, and he never earned a penny for it, he was not unrewarded any more than a person who sings a beautiful Bach choral is unrewarded. He did not need to be paid for it, any more than the young ten-year-old children who produced plays had to have 50 cents an hour, or the regular union rates. One of the intrinsic rewards for writing the sonnet was that nobleman thereby knew and understood his own feeling better, and he knew more about what love was, 
but part of his feelings were bogus, literally, and what were real, and what a beautiful thing the Italian or the English language was. If you read the letters written by the painter Van Gogh, you will see what his creative impulse was. He loved the sky, for example. He loved human beings. He wanted to show human beings how beautiful the sky was, so he painted it for them. And that was all there was to it. When Van Gogh was a young man in his early 20s, he was in London studying to be a clergyman. He had no thought of being an artist at all. He sat in his cheap little room, writing a letter to his younger brother in Holland, whom he loved very much. He looked out his window at a waterly twilight, a thin lamppost, a star, and he said in his letter something like, It is so beautiful, I must show you how it looks. And then on his ruled notepaper, he made the most beautiful, tender little drawing of it. When I read this letter of Van Gogh's, it comforted me very much and seemed to throw clear light on the whole road of art. Before, I had thought that to produce a work of painting or literature, you scowled and thought long and ponderously and weighed everything solemnly and learned everything that all artists had ever done aforetime, with their influences and schools were, and you were extremely careful about design and balance and getting interesting planes into your painting, and you avoided with the most stringent severity showing the faintest academic tendency, and were strictly modern, and so on, and so on. But the moment I read Van Gogh's letter, I knew what the creative impulse was. It is a feeling of love, and enthusiasm for something, and in a direct, simple, passionate, and true way, you try to show this beauty to others by drawing it. The difference between Van Gogh and you and me is that while we may look at the sky and think it is beautiful, we don't go so far as to show someone else how it looks. This might be because we do not care enough about the sky or for other people. But most often, I think it is because we have been discouraged into thinking that what we feel about the sky is not important. And Van Gogh's little drawing on the cheap notepaper was a work of art because he loved the sky and the frail lamppost against it so sincerely that he drew them with the most exquisite conscientiousness and care. He made it as similar to what he loved as he could.